Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're talking about an insight that I wrote called The Disease of Medical Lobbying, about the issue of America's doctor shortage and the problems of how an Atlantic piece looks at the issue. Yeah, so this was a good piece, um, somewhat Thank different you. than what we normally focus on. Um, yeah, well, I'm about to uh, register an objection to it. So not, um, a, not okay. Unacceptable. You argue that the way that the piece presents uh, towards the end of the Atlantic piece, the way that the author, uh, Derek Thompson, presents... Who, who I really like, and I don't mean to be too, uh, I guess, too critical because Derek is a really good writer and the piece is generally very good and it's a very important issue that too few people are talking about. So I appreciated that he wrote it. Right. Um, that aside, I did have some issues. Yeah. So you say that the downsides that he sort of presents, right? There's this sort of right. argument at the end where he addresses right. the po- like what could go wrong with the with the policies that he's yeah. sort of pr- that he's recommending, mm-hmm. um, uh, the possible perverse effects. And one of them is that if you uh, reduce the wages that doctors have, which is part of what. Um, is a, is a product of the scarcity of doctors, right? Doctors can command a high wage because there's right. so few of them. If right. you increase the supply of doctors, their wages will go down. Um, yeah. It's sort of a you know the basic co- supply-demand logic. Yeah, and so would the, the cost of employing them. So yeah. would the cost of employing them. But you're going to have, if the wages, if, if wages all of a sudden drop because you, you mm-hmm. know, radically increase supply, however you do that, however you do that. One um, billion doctors. One billion doctors. <laughs> one billion doctors. <laughs> radically increase the supply and wages will fall. And so you have doctors who are already in the business right now who have potentially several, several hundred thousand dollars in uh, med school debt. Right. And if their wages, if they cannot command the same wages, uh, they will not be able to pay back their debt. Um, right. And so I think one thing to consider, you say sort of, you know, um, schools will reduce their tuition costs in the future, but there is going to be this sort of cohort, an age cohort of uh, currently practicing doctors or doctors practicing in the future whenever this policy of that would increase supply is implemented that would basically bear the costs, right? Mm-hmm. They are the ones who would bear the costs in terms of their, you know, salary to debt ratio um, right. getting totally out of right. whack. Yeah. I mean, it's f- basically my response to the problem is that eventually it will be fine, but you're right to say that there is a period in which uh, there'll be some kind of shock therapy, almost, you want to say. Right. Right. Um, and uh, that's fair. I guess the two things that I would say are, um, one, there are about 10,000 people in the U.S. who have MDs, presumably a lot of them. Or are specialists, right? No, 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 no. Oh, just, just MDs. We're just talking about the people who have graduated med school and okay. have the doctorate. There are Got about 10,000 of these people who have the doctorate, presumably have a lot of student debt, many of them. Right. I'm sure some of them don't. Right. Uh, came in and were able to pay or got scholarships or whatever. Right. But presumably there's a lot of student debt among those 10,000 who, who are chronically unmatched with a residency program right because there are just aren't enough spots Mm. and these people just can't get one interesting right and so on the one hand we ought to talk about those people too 
What about all these people who are in debt who can't get a residency spot because there are arcane rules limiting how many of them can get residency spots, right? Right. So just to clarify, we're talking about two different groups of people here. One, and I, I just want to make sure our listeners understand. Yeah. One is uh, a group of, you know, practicing doctors who, if their salaries all of a sudden drop drastically, would not be able to cover the debts that they have outstanding. Right. And then there's another group of people who, due to the basically artificial um supply constraints um right. on the amount of doctors or the supply of doctors in the country right now right. don't have access to residencies and they also have medical school debt and how the hell are they going to pay that off right and so that's another group that you're talking right. about that we so have to consider. so i think if you're gonna if you're gonna point you're gonna say what about the the p- debt that these people are in how are they going to pay it off if we do this right well, there are already ten thousand people who are screwed because of the current system regarding their debt. And so I think those people are just as important to consider. Right. Now, setting that aside, I think also generally I'm of the opinion that the cost that a scarcity of doctors, an artificial scarcity of doctors imposes on the American people, right. both in terms of literal costs, it raises healthcare prices because doctors become more expensive. Um, it restricts and in terms of life cost right as in you're going to have fewer opportunities to see doctors Mm -hmm. and you're probably going to die earlier right and be less healthy right the those costs that a doctor scarcity imposes on the american people outweigh the costs that that reducing scarcity would have on some small some small group of doctors out there who who undertook more student loans that they could handle or whatever because now they're not getting paid exorbitant rates yeah i think that that's true right is i think we can say like the larger social problem and the fact that essentially right these are costs that are borne by the american people is more important than some group of you know doctors but right in you know in in moral terms but in practical terms this is also a huge source of, for example, the American Medical Association, which is sort of the organization, the the trade organization um, mm-hmm. of doctors, which lobbied very hard to impose these um, constraints. Um, if for this for people who maybe haven't read the article, in which case you should to just get a basic sense of what we're talking about here, um, that they are going to act to protect their own and they're going to, I mean, their their own constituent members are not going to say yeah. like, all, that's like for the moral good or whatever, I'm going to accept um, uh, a pay cut that may result in me <laughs> not being able to pay off my outstanding debt. So they're going to yeah. organize fiercely and we know that they're powerful already. We right. already know that they're a powerful lobby. the reason we have group. these problems in the first place. Because right. they're rich actually, because they're wealthy, they're doctors. Um, I wonder how that happens. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And it's an interesting, you know, just, just to note how self-reinforcing these things can be. Right. Um, is that once you manage to <laughs> accumulate and consolidate that private power over government, um, and to, and then you and, can make yourself right. rich, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you can have even more private right. power. But we're getting a little far afield here. Um, so I'm saying that that, that that you would probably need to find some sort of policy instrument in passing any sort of legislation that would sort of repeal the, the supply constraints, sort of artificial neut- supply Neutralize this opposition, right. or at the, least... Something power. that would... That yeah. Some form of recompense, basically. Yeah. A policy instrument. And I, I, you know, I think that that would be sort of fairly easy to, to, to come up with. Yeah, I... <laughs> I guess I guess I agree with that. I mean, it is a reality that there there's going to be this opposition, and that's one of the points in my piece is that there is going to be this opposition. You have to be realistic about that. But my attitude 
I guess, about the issue is that these people, as you said, have demonstrated the AMA and doctors in general and physicians in general have have demonstrated very clearly that they can advocate for themselves effectively. Right. That's why we're in this mess. Yeah. Right? Right. So my attitude is like, why would we sit here preoccupied with discussions of, oh, well, what about the doctors? You know, consider the doctors. When the doctors will very well figure it out for themselves. Right. Right. I mean, my attitude is that those of us who aren't doctors, who are just members of the public, should advocate unswervingly for what is best for the public. Right. Writ large. Yeah. As hard as possible. Mm -hmm. And doctors will advocate as hard as possible for themselves. We don't need to take time out of our days or out of our efforts to stop and say, well, okay, what kinds of concessions could we make in advance? Mm -hmm. You know, we shouldn't even think about that, right? That's just, that's conceding before you, before they've even tried to oppose you. And that to me seems, that to me seems like the wrong way to go about things personally. Uh, but you know, I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, I guess you know, I, I, I'm willing, to, I suppose, to concede that point. I guess I, one thing I would concern myself with a little bit is sort of like, and this is is a little abstract, so I don't know um, how I don't know quite how to put it in in really precise terms. But there's a bit of like a social fabric problem, which is you know, we're we should think of ourselves as involved in some sort of political project, democratic political project, together. And so you know, extending those sorts of olive branches maybe in, in, in legislative fights would be useful. But I do think you're right is that, you know, if but, we think of it as like interests coming together, hammering out a compromise that is, even if not satisfactory to everyone, sort of, you know, leaves everyone in a better place and solves the social problem. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is that the do- doctors, physicians, and the American Medical Association haven't in the past mm-hmm. and won't in the future lobby on behalf of the American public. Right. So why would the American public lobby on behalf of doctors in the American Medical Association? Yeah, that makes sense. Right. I mean, the, the, if they haven't looked out for the average American, the average American shouldn't be concerning themselves with the well-being of doctors. Right. B- broadly. Right. When considering new policies. I mean, obviously, I'm not out here like wanting doctors to be unhappy and miserable. Like they are my fellow Americans. Right. But when it comes down to policy fights, interest groups are going to treat it like a zero-sum game. They're going to want to get everything they possibly can out of it, mm-hmm. at even at my expense, right? And even at the average American's expense. And so the average American should treat it the same way. Right. Or else you're just, you're handing over it. You're taking an L. Yeah, I take that basically. point. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think there's another thing besides this argument that's important. And I wanted to mention it in the piece, but I didn't have room. Again, the same thing with the last podcast talking about the inside. I didn't have room. Um, which is, I have one other problem with Derek's sort of solution, just mm. fund more residency programs, uh, which is that it seems to fall into the trap of what the Niskanen Center, um, a, a think tank, actually, a, one guy from the Niskanen Center, Derek, is interviewing for the article. But the Niskanen Center calls cost disease socialism. Mm-hmm. And now Niskanen, the center put out like a long thing that you can read about it. I didn't, but 
Noah Smith did a very did a blog post that I liked a while back, back in October, I think, of 2021, uh, explaining cost disease socialism and talking about it in the American context. And it basically means this. Cost disease socialism is when the government continues to funnel money toward funding or subsidizing uh, programs in America that are more expensive than they should be. Right. The problem being that we just sink government resources into something that is already inefficient and expensive. And instead, we should be concerned with using government resources and regulations to try to cut those costs. Right. Right. Rather than just pitching money into the hole. Well, let's try to pitch dirt in first and then we'll fill it in the rest of the way with money. Right. right. And, and we'll save on, on that issue. Um, and when it comes to residencies, it seems to me like the U.S. could probably save money, make the residency program cheaper or, or less expensive before we just pour more money into it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that, that that I don't I don't have the, the qualifications to to talk about. Um, what the alternative to that would look like, but it is worth sort of pondering. Another uh, another example of cost disease, I think, in 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 the sort of health, public health um, uh, issue area, is with Obamacare, where um, you were able to purchase. Um, I don't know if there's a precise causal relationship here, but if you wanted to purchase a, a private health care plan, the government offered subsidies basically for you to do that. Um, the problem with the government offering subsidies basically for you know a, a, a private provider um, to, to, to give you um, some sort of social policy or social good, right? Health insurance in this mm-hmm, case, mm-hmm. is that they can just, you know, increase their prices um, because they're guaranteed to get that money and healthcare premiums yeah. have continued to go up in the u.s despite obamacare being something that would theoretically control costs now i'm not fully aware of i would have to go back and look Thanks, at the Obama. research <laughs> um, but it's true that you can that subsidies basically can create perverse incentives um for people to jack up prices and infrequently the government ends up just paying some sort of private provider of some good uh just to increase its own prices um so it 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 is a problem the Um, government pays the private group the group then raises their costs and passes that on to consumers right meanwhile the government spending is passed on in the form of taxes onto the consumer right the consumer now pays more both ways right Right. That's the worst case scenario. And I wonder, I mean, I think you can sort of break it down. And I also have not read the Niskanen report. Um, right. And so I don't know a lot about it. But I think it is interesting and, and one area of public policy that we probably don't consider enough um, in terms of how can you bring down costs of goods. Right. Um, and, and if you look at residency programs, I was looking at, at Germany, for example. Um, Germany is interesting I was looking at Germany, for example, compared to the United States, just to see, is it possible, you know, to have a a good medical system? Because Germany has good life expectancy. It has good rates of doctor visits. It's not like at the very top, but it has good ones, right? Right. So it's achievable. So that's why I was looking at them. Um, And it turns out, uh, if you want to just do general general practice in in Germany, all you need to do is do a six-year medical program. Now, that, that... includes your undergraduate mm-hmm. and 48 months 
practical training or residency. Mm. Less than a year. Right. 48 weeks, excuse me, 48 weeks, not 48 months, 48 weeks of, of, of residency. So less than a year. In the U.S., on the other hand, if you want to do general practice in just about every state, mm-hmm. you've got to do four years undergrad. Then you've got to do four years graduate. Okay, now we're already looking at two years more than Germany. And then most states, even to do general practice, no specialist work, you'll have to do at least a three-year residency. That's 11 years compared to less than seven. Mm. Now, the residency program in Germany, all you need to fund for general practice is 48 weeks. Right. You just need to, the government, all it needs to do is pay a salary, a living salary to, uh, to residents, residents uh, f- for 48 weeks. In the U.S., we've got to pay it for just about every single general practitioner. Right. Three years wages. Yeah. From the government. Right. We shouldn't just throw more money into that. Right. We should change the rules. Yeah. But of course, the AMA is standing very much in the way because they're going to lobby the hell out of every state legislature and D.C. to keep Mm. those rules in place. Right. Right. So that and I think that leads to the last point that I wanted to make um, before we before we sign off, which was that you basically have these sort of consolidated private powers like the AMA, the American Medical Association, exercising a lot of power over U.S. regulations. And this whole thing sort of cuts against this whole idea of a law passed in 1997 that essentially restricts the number of residencies, um, cuts against this idea that the United States is... uh, very lax in terms of the regulatory state. And in one right. sense, I think it is true that the United States is very lax in the terms of the regulatory state. You see corporations getting away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with all the time. And so in, some, in, in one sense, it's true. But I actually think in another sense, it sort of impoverishes your analysis to just think of the United States as being essentially um, a hyper-capitalist free-for-all. Right. Be- um, because it actually imposes regulations at the behest of privately consolidated powers, business associations, right. um, uh, uh, trade organizations like the like the medical, uh, the American Medical Association, and they actually lobby Congress to impose regulations. You talked about one in a, in a focus that you wrote a while back, right. a while back, where oil companies are allowed to drill on federal lands, but you're not allowed to drill for, for example, geothermal, which is an experimental technology that could potentially be used on, to do guys. something against climate change, but we don't know because um, someone who wants to drill for that is doesn't have the regulatory power to sort of experiment with it, or the regulations don't allow them right. to experiment with right. it. Um, you see it with zoning regulation, something we talk about a lot of the time. Everyone talks about this all the time now with sort of cities and um, essentially, you know, property owners, homeowners associations exercise local cartels over their local governments right. and say, you can't, you know, build multifamily homes here, which would lower the cost of housing. Right. They want to keep housing prices up. Right. Oil companies want to keep making well, a profit. Which, it's, which is a interesting to compare to Germany, which we think of as like a... Uh, social democratic european big nanny state regulatory everything and in some sense it is well yeah but at the end of the day i mean in the example of say becoming a doctor right it actually looks well hey it looks a lot more relaxed than the united states right and the reality is that germany even as it might have regulations they're more obvious on the surface and they many times 
I would say you really have a choice. Okay, here's I, I think I said this when we were talking about the article before. Mm-hmm. Let me try to find the words to say it again. Um, there's no such thing as a state that's not going to regulate things. Right. Okay? Or a, a state where there isn't regulation of activity, business, the economy, etc. Right. It's going to happen no matter what. You have a decision to make whether those regulations are imposed and crafted by private groups mm-hmm. or publicly accountable groups. Yeah, exactly. Like a legislature. Right. And I think what you saw in the U.S., just to paint with an extremely broad brush, is you saw a sort of economic environment that was more uh, structured in many ways mm-hmm. In the, say, in the 60s and the 70s, there's more government regulation because there's more sort of progressive left-leaning leadership, right, Um, of the economy and of business and things like this. Right. And then in comes Reagan in the sort of Reaganite, Thatcherite moment. Right. And deregulates. Right. Right. Remove public, publicly accountable, democratically accountable rules of regulation. Mm -hmm. And then you have a vacuum. Right. And who fills it in? But private groups, business groups, business lobbies, the AMA, all kinds of things. Right. So someone fills that in, except now we don't get to vote on who who is who is in those groups. Right. right. Yeah. You know, our votes don't have power, as much power there. Right. And so we went from, you know, uh, regulated, publicly accountable to non-regulated to regulated, not publicly accountable. Which is <laughs> the that's, worst of all worlds. That's the worst of all worlds. So Right. Uh, right. Anyways. Yeah, I think that's it. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.